Well, as we continue in worship, and in a moment we're going to go to God's word, I want us to take some time in this space that God set aside for us just to reflect, just to pay attention as to where we are. I don't know where you are in this moment, but I know where I am. And I find myself in a very unique time, in a very unique place in human history. If you've been paying attention to anything that's going on in the United States, whether relationally or communally, you're aware that it seems as though we as a, as a people are, are trying to drive one another into one of two directions. What do I mean? I mean that we're trying to drive each other into a, a left or a right way of life. And yet, if you are a follower of Jesus, you know that these aren't the only two directions. In fact, Jesus has been inviting us over the last number of weeks into a number of different directions, into a number of different dimensions. You know, there, there aren't just two directions any more than there are just simply two dimensions. We live in a multi-dimensional world. There's, you know, length and width and, and height and breadth and, and time and 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 all these different dimensions that we live in. In fact, some scientists even think that we might potentially live in as many as 10 different dimensions. And I'm like, my mind's already blown. I'm like, no, 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 I don't need to know about those 10 dimensions. I'm already having a really hard time navigating the dimensions that I am aware of. <laughs> I don't need more. But my point is, is that we can't just limit ourselves to two directions. In, God, in fact, God is not just limiting us to these left or right directions, but rather God is inviting us into this upward and inward and downward and outward way of life. God is inviting us to take this upward and inward way and bring it down to the ground to make it groundward. Yes, I said groundward, I know, that's not a word, but let me unpack that for us. What do I mean when I say God's inviting us into a downward way of life or into a groundward way of life? Well, before I get there too, I just wanna, if you haven't been tracking with this sermon series, I would encourage you to go to YouTube, uh, wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts and, and track with us, follow with us. But if you haven't been doing that, it's okay. Stay with us because this sermon series makes sense or this sermon today makes sense in a standalone. So let's go to God's word uh, as we listen to God's invitation for us to take our upward and inward lives and bring them down to the ground. We're going to go to the gospel according to Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 24. I'll be reading out of the New Revised Standard Version, but I encourage you just to follow along. You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder. And whomever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you, this is Jesus speaking. I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you'll be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say you fool, you'll be liable to the hell of fire. So, when you're offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother or sister and then come 
and offer your gift. This is the reading of God's word. And because we believe it's trustworthy and true, we say, thanks be to God. Now, it's common for me. In fact, I've said this many times, but it's a common refrain that I often hear from various people is that, you know, God, what God really cares about is your heart. Have you ever heard that? Or God is just really concerned only about your spiritual life. And don't get me wrong. Listen, <laughs> your heart, the things that you care about, your character, your spiritual life, the way in which you relate with God in prayer, all those things absolutely matter. And yet they cannot be separated from your life on the ground. Let me give you an example. Have you ever had someone say to you, I'll be praying for you? You share something that's going on in your life and their response is like, oh, yes, I'll be praying for you. And that's beautiful because isn't it amazing that there are other people in our lives that are holding us before God in prayer? That, that spiritual act is just such a beautiful thing. And yet I wonder, have you ever had someone who, after you shared with them something that's going on in your life, they don't just say that they'll be praying for you, but they actually stop. They put their hand on your shoulder and they begin to pray with you. They begin to speak over you, speak into the things that you're concerned of. And afterwards, they give you that embrace and you're being held in that moment. And not only that, have you ever had someone who, after having shared your prayer with that person, they pray with you, they pray for you, and then they show up. They like literally show up into your circumstance. Whatever it was that you asked, that you offered, that you needed someone else to hold, they showed up and they became the answer to your prayer. Have you ever had that? Isn't that so like transformative? So life-giving? So different than simply keeping that prayer in the spiritual, but actually bringing that spiritual into the physical. I have a friend who is battling cancer. I have, unfortunately, multiple friends that are battling cancer, but this one specific friend who's battling cancer, and recently uh, he was expressing gratitude to a group of people for the ways in which we had been caring for him the ways in which we've been praying for him. And then he said this. It really struck me, and I really want you to catch it. He said, I know that God is with me, but for God to put flesh on that, I'm just thankful to God for the ways that God has met me through these people. Did you hear that? Did you notice all the ways in which he's giving glory? He's, he's attributing this care from God, but from God through people. He's taking that up and in, and he's recognized the power of when we bring that to the ground, when we actually live that out. See, when we pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, we often call this the Lord's Prayer. It's actually, I think of it as the disciples' prayer, we say, our Father who art in heaven. Do you see what's going on there? Our Father, that's a very relational, down-to-earth way to reference God. Our Father is down, who art in heaven. 
is up. And we continue on in that prayer and we say, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Again, we take what's up and we are praying that it will come down, that we are taking our upward and inward selves, our lives, our relationship with God. And we're saying, God, I want to take that. I want you to take that. And can you bring it to the ground on earth as it is in heaven? I wonder though, I wonder if there's a problem in the way in which we separate our spiritual with our relational our spiritual with our physical. I wonder why we do that. I wonder if we really want heaven to come down. I wonder if it's safer for us just to keep heaven in heaven, right? I wonder if it's more convenient for us to keep our relationship with God only in the spiritual realm. Maybe if we keep God in the dimension of our heart, Jesus won't need to reach our hands and our feet. And if that's the case, then the question I have is then why, God? Why for you to become flesh? Why send Jesus from heaven to come down to earth? Why? If it's only about the spiritual, why don't you just meet us in the spiritual? I want us to hold on to that question and let's go back to God's word. We're again in Matthew, the gospel of Matthew chapter five, but I want us to Go a little bit earlier in the chapter, verses 1 through 12. Follow along with me. It says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to them, came to him, and and then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Prior to this moment, prior to Jesus going up on this mountain, Jesus had just spent 40 days in the wilderness You're familiar with this story where Jesus is tempted in every way by Satan in the wilderness. These three massive temptations and and Jesus is spending 40 days in his upward relationship with his father and his inward relationship with his father and with himself. And we find him now in this moment. He has climbed this mountain, which I think is kind of funny. the way that this scene is described, it's Jesus climbed a mountain. Listen, if you're in the Pacific uh, Northwest, if you're from Colorado, if you're in, I don't know, Switzerland, uh, you hear this word mountain and you might have an image. Um, if you actually saw this mountain, you would say, that's not a mountain, that's a hill. Uh, you might even call it a speed bump compared to some of these mountains out there. 
And then if you're from Southern California, like I am, you're going to look at it and go, oh, that looks just like the Santa Monica Mountains. And then you go up on this hill or on this mountain and you hear Jesus, he's, he's speaking on this hill, on this mountain, and he's overlooking the Sea of Galilee. Well, that's confusing for me because when I'm on the Santa Monica Mountains and I look out to the sea, I'm looking out towards the ocean. But Jesus is actually looking out over a lake. And so I want us to just have this picture of where Jesus is. He's walking up this hill, sitting down with his disciples with this gorgeous view. I've been there. It's fantastic. Looking out over this lake. And he begins to share what we often, I think, as Christians refer to these, this, this, this Sermon on the Mount, this section of the sermon, we often call it the Beatitudes. Uh, we, we call it uh, and refer to it as something that Jesus is wanting us to have as like this inward attitude. I see it differently. I, I think it's more like the Beatitudes, relational aptitudes rather than inward attitudes, but more of a relational way relational skills, the way in which we relate with one another. Jesus is saying, this is how I want you to relate with one another. The Beatitudes, the meek, the righteous, the merciful, the peacemaker. These are all external aptitudes and how you and I are to relate with one another. So when I relate with you, I need to come with meekness. When I relate with you, I need to come and act justly and rightly in relationship with you. When I come to you as my brother or sister, I need to be a peacemaker, not a peacekeeper, but the, as far as it depends on me, make peace with everyone kind of person. Matthew 5 is Jesus' community manifesto his kingdom of heaven, course of action. Jesus wasn't running for office. He wasn't trying to get the popular vote. He was actually ushering in the actual campaign of God. Jesus was taking the reign and rule that exists in heaven and bringing it down to earth. We call this heaven coming down incarnation. Incarnation in the flesh that word carnation, you know, carne asada. Okay, sorry, I don't mean to mention carne asada because already I'm salivating. But you get the idea. It's this in the flesh life. God coming down in the person of Jesus in the flesh. God taking the kingdom of heaven down to earth and putting flesh on it. This upward and inward God came down and lived outward, embodied in the person of Jesus. The incarnation is the life of Christ. And the incarnation is also the life of a Christian. In a world that promotes pride and self-importance, Christians, we're to seek meekness. In a society that tramples one another to get ahead, Christians, we are to embody right relationships with one another. In a climate where we're taught that revenge is good, in fact, when a person gets the best of you, get revenge 15 times over, some people say. And Jesus says, no, my people embody mercy. 
in a culture where leadership gurus tell us to get even. People try to take advantage of you, but once you're done with them, they're the ones who are going to want to make peace. And Jesus says, no, my people aren't just peaceful individuals, but are proactive peacemakers. This is how the spiritual becomes physical. This is how the upward and inward life comes down and actually hits the ground. This is how our very lives, the ways in which we relate with God and with one another, our very life becomes worship. Consider that as you listen to Jesus' words for us today. Again, we're back in Matthew 5, but looking at verses 21 through 24. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say you fool, you'll be liable to the hell of fire. So, when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. Jesus is like, you are familiar with the rule of law. Do not murder. And yet I'm telling you, and I'm like, whoa, wait, hold on, time out. What's... Wait, Jesus, you're doing, you're doing what here? You're telling me? It's as if Jesus is saying, you know that guy, Moses? <laughs> you know that guy that kind of had the Ten Commandments? And, and you know that whole do not murder thing? <laughs> Moses said this, but I'm saying this to you. That's bold. That's bold, Jesus. Moses had 10 words from God to share with the Israelites. But Jesus was the word of God being shared with the entirety of the world. Moses came down from the mountain with Ted words, and yet the word of God goes up the mountain with the very words of life. The word says to us today, in verse 22, I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. Anger. Is anyone else angry? <laughs> Am I the only one? <laughs> I think the better question might be, is anyone not angry in this time? Our culture is feeding off of anger. That's why we call it a news feed. I'm not trying to braid any you know, newscaster. I, I think when you actually are looking for the truth and, what's, and being able to present the truth to society, I think that's a very important role. But what I'm finding is that we are not feeding off of truth. We are feeding in our news feeds off of anger. And some do this through joking, through sarcasm, and others don't even try to hide it. They're so red in the face. We live day to day on a steady diet of anger. And it's even covered with a really you know, heavy helping of fear. And we begin to become what we eat. We begin to embody anger and this anger seeps into every area of our life. 
When we're feeding off of this daily diet of anger, we're not, we're, we're, we're not just angry at our political opponent, we're angry at ourselves. We become angry at the way in which we look, where we are in life, what job we have, what friends we have, or we're angry at the friends we lost. Thanks a lot, Tennessee and Texas. <laughs> I lost a lot of good friends to you. <laughs> but we become angry at our spouse and our kids or the lack thereof. And it almost sounds sarcastic hearing Jesus say this in our current context, to hear Jesus say, if, if anyone is so much as angry with a brother or sister, and yet Jesus is not being sarcastic, he is being serious. Serious about the kingdom community of God. Watch out, Jesus says, don't be so careless in calling your sibling an idiot. Don't be so thoughtless in calling someone stupid. Don't be so senseless in calling someone dumb or wicked. Or when you demonize a brother or sister, watch out, there's going to be hell to pay. The simple moral fact is that words kill. Sticks and stones, we say, may break my bones, but words will utterly destroy me. The simple moral fact is that words, whether spoken, texted, tweeted, posted, emailed, or snail mail, absolutely have the power to destroy a community. And they are killing the community of God. But it doesn't have to be this way. I love it. Jesus offers us so much hope. Jesus gives us another way, a kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven kind of way. We see this in Matthew 5, verse 23. This is how I want you to conduct yourself in these matters, Jesus says. If, if you enter your place of worship and about to make an offering and you suddenly remember a grudge a friend has against you, abandon your offering. Leave it immediately. Go to this friend and make things right. Then and only then come back and work things out with God. I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases that passage. It just comes alive for me. And I want to point out three key things that Jesus offers us in this passage. The first, I'll give you the three right now. There's the assumption, the urgency, and the priority. Let's start with the first, the assumption. Notice that Jesus says in this passage, when you suddenly remember a grudge a friend has against you. He doesn't say when you suddenly remember that you are holding a grudge against someone else. There's an assumption there that Jesus is like, no, of course, if you're holding a grudge against someone else, of course you would have already gone to that person and worked that out with them before you would come and offer me worship. Of course, that's how we would function. There's an assumption that that is now, I don't, want to assume that that's actually how you and I function in our relationship with one another. But he's not saying, oh, when you have a grudge, he's saying, I want you to catch this. When someone is holding a grudge against you, go to them. Now, you know, I have plenty of these stories. Like you, I too am guilty of being angry. I'm guilty of holding grudges and I specifically remember this one Sunday where 
I was serving with a colleague in ministry at the time and, and he and I were at odds with one another. We were in disagreement. There were things that were said, things that were done that rubbed one another the wrong way and, and I was holding a grudge. And yet here I am in worship with my brother standing right next to me and I'm doing one of these things, you know, I'm just like raising my hands, worshiping God. But what's going on inside is I'm keenly aware that my brother is right next to me. Keenly aware of the tension and the wall that's been built up next to, next to me as I try to worship God, knowing that there is a, a break in relationship with my brother. And here I am the one who's holding the grudge. Here I am holding the grudge, trying to worship, but my hands, they feel heavy. My heart feels heavy and I'm distracted in worship. And in that moment, literally in that moment, I couldn't do it anymore. I'm like, I'm not, look, I'm not very good at faking it, nor should I be. <laughs> I don't think it's a good idea to fake it. But I wasn't good at faking it in the moment. And I stopped what I was doing in that moment and I turned to him and I, and I brought him close and I said, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry for the way in which I've been treating you. I'm sorry for holding the grudge. It was eating me up. It was eating me up inside. And it was causing a, a massive wall in my relationship with my brother. And not only that, but it was causing this rift in my relationship with God. And so in that moment, I, I was able to speak into his ear and apologize. And by God's grace, he forgave me and we embraced <laughs> and we turned right back around because the song was still going and all of a sudden my hands are back up, but they're much lighter. And that wall was broken down with my brother and that barrier with God was no longer there and I was worshiping freely and lightly. It was beautiful. But that's just an example of when I am aware of a grudge that I'm holding against someone else. But what do I do when I'm aware of a grudge that someone else is holding against me? What do you do in those scenarios? Do you continue worshiping? Do you continue trying to fake it till you make it? Or do you put your hands down and let, let your, leave your worship at the altar and go and try to make things right with your sister or with your brother? This brings me to point number two, the urgency. I want you to notice the urgency that Jesus has in this passage because grudges are like yeast in a community. Just a little bit goes a long way. And in fact, it takes over the whole dough. You know what I'm talking about? You know, the person that, that holds a grudge, that phrase, holding a grudge, that's kind of silly. We don't hold grudges. Like we share grudges. We're like Oprah with grudges. Like you get a grudge, you get a grudge, you get a grudge. Everyone gets a grudge these days. You didn't even know that you wanted a grudge until the person who had it made it yours. They made their grudge your grudge. How many times is this pastor going to say grudge? Well, a little bit more. Because why stop with holding a grudge when you can add a little bit of anger and fear mixed in with it. And then all of a sudden the whole community is start to rise up. Look at Pillsbury dough croissant. 
until we are about to burst because of our anger and our bitterness, all from this, this grudge that we're holding and sharing. If you're holding a grudge, if you're holding a grudge with someone else, your grudge is like yeast. And it's, it's working its way throughout the entire batch of dough. It's working its way into our community. And if you know someone, someone who's holding a grudge against you, please go and address it now. For the sake of your relationship and for the well-being of our community, grudges can destroy us. Listen to what Jesus says. If you remember a grudge a friend has against you, abandon your offering. Leave immediately. Go to this friend and make things right. This brings us to number three, the priority. This that Jesus is offering us today isn't just a suggestion. Jesus is not offering us some helpful tips for healthy community. No, Jesus puts our relational aptitude over and above our spiritual attitude, our spiritual offering. He says, if you're making an offering, I want you to leave it, leave it. Jesus is equating our ability to live in right relationships with one another as a spiritual act of worship. What Jesus is saying in this passage would be unheard of for any rabbi to say in the first century. Jesus is completely flipping the script. Jesus is radically reversing the teaching of first century rabbis. It was popular practice of the day that to emphasize one's relationship with God over and above one's relationship with others. If you were in worship, rabbis would say, and you realize that someone has something against you, you were taught to complete your worship to God since your spiritual life always came first. And then after you're done, then you can go and try to make things right with the person. But Jesus flipping the script, Jesus says that one's spiritual life, one's spiritual life cannot be compartmentalized from one's physical life. These two are one in the same, your spiritual and your relational. Your relational is spiritual. But Jesus isn't preaching a new idea here. He is reinforcing what God has been desiring all along. We hear this in the first Testament in, in the book of Amos, chapter five, verses 21 through 24. This is God speaking and God saying to the community, I cannot stand your religious meetings. I'm fed up with your conferences and conventions. I want nothing to do with your religious projects your pretentious slogans and goals. I'm sick of your fundraising schemes, your public relations and image making. I've had all I can take of your loud songs and even your quiet melodies. When was the last time you actually sang to me? God says, you can leave it at the altar. Do you know what I want? God says, I want justice. Oceans of it. I want fairness, God says, rivers of it. I want you to live in right relationships with one another. That's what I want. That's all I want. God is emphasizing 
in the book of Amos, emphasizing our relational lives over what we often consider to be our spiritual lives. But God's saying, no, that is your spiritual act of worship. Jesus, you know this, when asked by some, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? What's the one greatest commandment? Jesus responds by offering two. Two that are one and the same. Jesus says, I want you to love God and I want you to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus takes this one step further. One of Jesus' most fundamental principles of community is not just love for our neighbor, but found in Matthew 5, Jesus says, I want you to love your enemies. I want you to pray for those who persecute you. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? It's almost like, what, you want a gold star for loving someone who loves you? Like, anyone can do that. No, I want you to take love to the next level. This is so challenging, so challenging for me. And the Apostle Paul reaffirms Jesus' teaching. He says that if you've ever been, you know, it's in 1 Corinthians 13. I say this because likely if you've ever been to a Christian wedding, you've heard 1 Corinthians 13 read out loud. But what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 13 was not meant simply for a couple, a married couple. No, Paul was writing to a community. And these words that Paul has to say is about us living well in community. And Paul warns us that our big faith, that even our amazing generosity, the greatest of spiritual gifts that we might possess without love, we know this. Paul says all of that is worth nothing. Nothing. If we're consistently experienced as unapproachable and cold or unsafe and defensive or rigid and judgmental, Not only are we relationally immature, but Jesus and Paul are saying that we are spiritually immature. So right at this moment, this is where it can get a little awkward because you might be like self-reflecting and going, well, my goodness, actually, I'm self-deflecting and I know exactly who this applies to. You might be sitting next to them. You might be holding their hand. You might actually be squeezing their hand right about now or you have your arm wrapped around and you poke them in the back. You know what I'm talking about? Or you're with a friend or you're thinking about a friend. You're like, oh, this is so my colleague. I know exactly who the pastor is talking about. And I'm saying, listen, all those things might be true, but I would really want us to take a moment and just look at ourselves in the mirror to reflect on who we are, how we relate with one another, Is this true about who we are? What is Jesus inviting us into in this moment? Imagine the difference that it would make if we all looked at ourselves in the mirror. If we consider our own lives, the way in which we live and the way in which we love, the ways we fail to forgive, the ways in which we hold a grudge. And instead of pointing the blame at somebody else, what if we followed the lead of the Apostle Paul when he says, offer your bodies, offer your bodies, He doesn't say offer your spouse's body or your friend's body. He says, no, I want you to offer your body, your down-to-earth, physical, in-the-flesh selves as a living, active, go-to-your-sibling-and-make-things-right kind of sacrifice. This is your spiritual act of worship. Imagine what kind of healing could take place. 
Imagine how transformative this would be for our community. This would be so countercultural. This would be on earth as it is in heaven kind of community. God is so passionate. He is so concerned. He is so keenly aware of how we relate with one another. So as the church, those of us who claim to live under the reign and rule of Jesus Christ, when we embody Jesus, when our upward and inward lives manifest themselves in our downward relationship, God's kingdom in heaven comes down to earth. God's people, you and I, we actually embody. We embody God's kingdom. We live it out. Sounds simple. It's not always easy. It's easier to bring our gift to the altar than to reconcile with a grudge. It's easier for us to worship with our mouth, even to give of our time, our talents, and our treasure than it is to do the hard work to cultivate the community of God. Yet we're all called to this work. We're all called to be living sacrifices. So I want to give us two ways in which we can do this, and I'm doing it quickly. First, we need to learn how to enter into the world of someone else. And the best way we can do that is through listening. We have to learn how to listen, church. We have to learn how to listen well. You need to be able to pay attention, to not get hooked when someone says something to you that you disagree with, but actually ask questions and have the ability to not only listen for your opportunity to speak, no, listen and try to reflect back what the other person is saying. Try to enter into their world. Jesus on the cross was hung in between two worlds. He entered into our world and he held the two worlds in tension. And you entering into the life of somebody else, into someone else's world, you embody that. And you have to hold that tension. You and I, that's the second way, is we hold this tension. Holding this tension between two worlds. Jesus on the cross between these two worlds is actually filling the space with grace. You might find yourself on the right or on the left, but can you fill the space with grace? Can you embody the grace of God even with those that you disagree with? This is how we can bring healing. It sounds simple, but it is not easy. Listening well, embodying the grace of God is transformative. It is incarnational. It is kingdom of heaven on earth as it, as it is in heaven kind of life. It's beautiful and it's worth the effort. Would you join me in saying yes to Jesus' invitation for us today? Would we take our upward and inward relationship with God and we bring it downward, groundward in the ways in which we relate with one another in community? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you that you, being high and lifted up on the throne of heaven, came down, humbled yourself in a person named Jesus Christ. You came in the flesh. You embodied heaven and came down to be with us so that we might be able to relate with you, connect with you, so that you can communicate and demonstrate just how wide and high and deep 
your love is for us. Jesus, may we embody that kind of life. May we embody the love that you have for us as we seek to love one another. For your glory, Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.